Good evening. Thank you all for coming to hear all about Johannes Brahms. Brahms turned 185 uh, last week, so I thought we'd all <laughs> want to celebrate him. He, he actually shares the birthday of May 7th with Tchaikovsky. And uh, Tchaikovsky was seven years younger, but we're not going to talk about Tchaikovsky because Brahms and Tchaikovsky hated each other, so <laughs> he has no place this evening. But Brahms did have a lot of friends, surprisingly, because apparently he was one of the most offensive people uh, in the music world. But somehow he managed to make up with the people he really cared about. So I'm going to tell you his story. He was born in Hamburg, Germany, right on the coast in 1833. And Brahms uh, grew up in a family where his father was a musician, a horn player and a bass player. And so there were music lessons very early on. Brahms learned to play the violin, he learned to play the cello, but most of all, he learned to play the piano. And by age nine or so, his dad was farming him out to play in dance halls. Now, most of the dance halls were really getting going when Brahms was already asleep. So he would, his dad would wake him up in the middle of the night and say, okay, Caden, I don't know, you should watch out. You're about that age. But um, Brahms, Brahms had this experience as a young man and uh, really took off as a pianist. And his father was very upset because Brahms was more interested in composing than in playing the music that he was given. Now, some of the music that he was given uh, was music that not only we do not know today, but we don't even know who the composers were. There was a lot of forgettable music being written and being passed on to young Brahms. So Brahms's interest more and more was in writing his own music. And fortunately, uh, when he was 12, he went to a much greater piano teacher who encouraged his compositional gifts as well as his performance gifts. So when he was 12, 13, 14, he gave a number of public recitals. But his teacher, Edward Markson, was very interested in Brahms as a composer. So by the time Brahms was a teenager, he had written quite a lot of music. However, Brahms was a very self-critical man. He was as a young man, and he was as an old man. And anything that he didn't like, he destroyed. So there's a lot more of Brahms' music that nobody has ever seen than music that we actually know about. Uh, when he was 16 or 17, he met a Hungarian violinist by the name of Remenyi, Ede Remenyi. And they went on several tours together performing sonatas, uh, violin and piano sonatas, or maybe concerto movements. But um, Brahms didn't like to use music, so he would do all of this from memory. Obviously, he was very gifted, uh, not only as a pianist, but, but his musical mind was a brilliant one. Apparently, in one city, the piano was a half a step flat, and Brahms didn't want the, the Beethoven C minor violin sonata to be played in B minor, so he just transposed the entire thing up a half step for the uh, concert. <laughs> now, a side note, I used to live in England, and there were wonderful programs on the BBC when they would take musical experts and, and uh, quiz them. And so the question for the musical expert was, in what famous performance did the pianist intentionally not play a single right note? <laughs> the answer was supposed to be when Brahms accompanied this and the person without dropping a beat said, well, when they played Ravel's left-hand concerto. So they still won the full prize. 
Brahms then sent all of his music to the greatest German composer and music supporter of his time, Robert Schumann. But the package came back unopened, and there was no meeting with Schumann when Brahms was 17 years old. But a few years later, when he was in Dusseldorf, he decided he wouldn't take a chance on that, and so he simply presented himself at Robert Schumann's door. Now, Robert Schumann was a great composer, no longer a great pianist because he had attempted to uh, improve his fourth finger on his hand by putting it up in a leather sling and managed to cripple his whole hand. But, and the, the, the medical cure at the time, which was putting it in a, a live pig, did not work, shockingly. <laughs> but Schumann was married to one of the greatest pianists who ever lived, Clara Schumann. Now, Clara Schumann was about 10 years younger than Robert Schumann. And uh, in walked Johannes Brahms, the handsome, dashing Johannes Brahms, who was about 10 years younger than Clara. So uh, this very interesting relationship formed almost immediately. The Schumanns fell in love with young Brahms, perhaps for different reasons. And uh, Brahms immediately played for them his first three piano sonatas, big, giant works, uh, a scherzo, showed them some songs he had written, and he was just barely 20 years old. Robert Schumann had a large following, a public, in Germany, and they read everything that he wrote about music. Schumann wrote, we have discovered the next genius, the man who will carry the spirit of Beethoven forward into the future, an eagle. Well, Brahms was not constitutionally the sort of person who could handle this kind of praise because he was afraid he would never uh, fulfill those expectations. So while this did enormous things for Brahms's popularity in the short term, it crippled him somewhat in the long term because uh, he'd, he'd started writing his first symphony and ultimately it took him 22 years to write it because he felt the pressure of Robert Schumann saying, this is what uh, this young man is capable of. Now Schumann, the following year, was committed to a mental asylum where he remained for the last two years of his life. The medicine of the time was not very advanced, and they thought that if Clara Schumann were to visit her husband in the institution, that would excite his nerves and kill him. However, Brahms was allowed to visit him all the time. So Brahms became a go-between for Clara and Robert. And between 1854 and 1856, he would go to this uh, institution, this asylum, and either write or go see Clara in person, which both of them loved, and um, give reports about Robert Schumann. So when Schumann died, Clara and Brahms uh, had this very complex relationship. Uh, they were certainly in love with one another. There were eight Schumann children, and Brahms decided that the noble thing to do would be to just move in and help Clara take care of the eight children, which is what he did. What else happened, we do not know. Um, we really don't, because there are hundreds of letters between Schumann, uh, Clara Schumann and Brahms, but hundreds more that were destroyed by, by the two of them. So uh, we only suppose that in the same way, Brahms only left us the music that he wanted us to see, he only left us the letters that he wanted to see. Uh, this story continues. Meanwhile, Brahms the composer is writing hundreds of songs, 
lots of piano music and chamber music. He loves writing chamber music because remember, he played the cello and the violin in addition to the piano. So there are 24 magnificent chamber works he has left us. Piano sonatas, uh, sorry, piano and violin sonatas, piano and cello sonatas, string quartets, string sextets, piano trios, piano quartets, a piano quintet. Occasionally he even uh, descended to write for the clarinet, but that was later when he was losing his mind, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh, the, the chamber music from Brahms is fantastic, and no chamber music festival, including ours here, ever goes by without some magnificent works of Brahms. I, I can guarantee that will always happen anywhere in the world. So uh, this magnificent music is being ignored largely because um, Brahms can't find a publisher. And uh, he writes this big piano concerto in response to Schumann's uh, first sickness and then death. And this work is so full of Brahms's personality, a, a very distinct personality. Uh, I, I can't play the orchestra, but the orchestra starts something like this. It's quite arresting, and you will admit, it doesn't sound like Beethoven. Um, it, it, the tonality is unclear, and the intensity is so strong, and when the piano finally comes in, it's almost a response to the incredible emotional power of the orchestra, as if the piano is voicing a kind of uh, PTSD, that after all of this, uh, all the piano can say about it. But as this concerto goes on, of course, it becomes more and more passionate from the piano point of view. And uh, it was unlike any piano concerto that had ever been written. Brahms mixed a very expressive, emotional, romantic quality with a deep love of classical purity. And this makes him unique among romantic composers in the latter half of the 19th century because Liszt and Wagner and Bruckner and Mahler were all moving somewhere new. Brahms, probably because of his teacher, Edward Markson, who was a great lover of Bach and Handel and Haydn, um, had, had inculcated in Brahms this deep love of classical style. All music had to have an architecture that made sense from the beginning to the end. Now, I said Clara Schumann was one of the great pianists of the 19th century, and she certainly was, but indisputably the greatest pianist of the 19th century and possibly of all times was Franz Liszt. So Brahms went to see Franz Liszt and brought him some of his music, and Liszt was very impressed and sat down and played it perfectly at sight, and Brahms was very impressed, and Liszt said, so now I'm working on this sonata and I'm gonna play it for you. And uh, it was one of those Listian things where there's fantasy and improvisation. <laughs> looked over at Brahms because he wanted to see how approving the young man would be, and Brahms was fast asleep. <laughs> so Brahms wrote an article, not very wisely, I might say, about how the improvisatory and fantasia-like nature of Liszt's composition was like rank and, and foul-smelling weeds in the, in the field of music. Um, 
Brahm stopped writing publicly. He, he, <laughs> he thought it was better to just write music after that. But uh, Liszt really could have cared less. Um, the two of them, you know, didn't see each other after that. It was not a lasting animosity, but I, I tell the story because the difference in the aesthetic values of the two men as composers could not have been more polarizing. Wagner, like Liszt, believed that all music should be moving toward a new future. Brahms felt that all music should be built upon the great music of the past. If you think about it, Bach did not have to sit around wondering what the other great composers had done before him. Uh, nobody knew. You know, Bach knew what people in his family had written. Uh, Mozart knew more than Bach did. Beethoven knew more than the two of them. But by the time Brahms came along, all this music had been preserved. And so there was a much more daunting uh, level that a composer had to rise above in order to be accepted as a great composer. So uh, Brahms was always feeling this, and um, he felt that without the structure, the counterpoint, the harmony of uh, the great masters of previous centuries, that music was not realizing its full potential. Now, when I say counterpoint, that may be a baffling word for some people. Uh, in music, if several melodies can go on at the same time, and still conform to the harmony that's happening, we call that counterpoint. And it's not easy to do, but Brahms was an absolute master of it. And in order to make his mastery even greater, he introduced himself to the famous German violinist, Josef Joachim. Now, Joachim was truly the most impressive violinist in probably in Europe at the time, also a composer. And Brahms's approach to him was, you and I should make a thorough study of the last 150 years of counterpoint together and just immerse ourselves in this. And that is what these two boys did. They just, they, they found every Palestrina motet. They explored William Byrd. Of course, they went through every note of Bach and Handel. And the two of them, really came to grips with everything that Western counterpoint had been up to this point. Which is why, in the music of Brahms, even when it seems that it's an outpouring of sheer sensual beauty, counterpoint and music theory are never far away from the surface. I'll give you an example. Uh, when Brahms was 32, his mother died. By the way, Brahms's mother was 17 years old than, older than Brahms's father. And uh, they, they never had a good relationship. At 73, Brahms's father tried to divorce Brahms's mother, who was by this time also blind, and uh, basically pushed her out of the house. Uh, she died the following year, and Brahms had been trying to support both households. So uh, it was not a happy situation in which Brahms grew up. It was not a happy situation in which his parents parted. And when his mother died, he wrote a great requiem mass, which he called a German requiem, because the text he used were all in German. He said to his friends he would rather called it the human requiem, because that was in alignment with his personal beliefs. But this German requiem, right in the middle as its centerpiece, sets the texts, how lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord. And the, this chorus sings, Okay.
But before the chorus comes in and sings that in four-part harmony, the orchestra plays this ravishingly beautiful theme. Does anybody want to venture a guess what the relationship between those two little tunes? It's upside down. You get full marks for that. That was really good, yes. So the, the, the um, tune in the orchestra goes a third down, a step down, a step down, a step down, a third down, a step down, a step up, and a step up. If you reverse all of those exactly, you get a third up, a step up, a step up, a step up, a third up, a step up, a step down, a step down. So this inspirational tune was in fact nothing more than counterpoint. And Brahms once said, ironically, I think, when inspiration fails, I simply rely on counterpoint. <laughs> uh, I'm going to actually play you a piece um, in a while, but uh, I'll give you another example of this, the piece which has a beautiful melody. Later on has an even more beautiful melody. Now that you know about the uh, Brahms Requiem, can you guess what the relationship of those two? <laughs> the one is the other one exactly upside down, right? And so there you go. This is Brahms at work. He is always following some compositional logic, not just a beautiful tune, and yet he came up with many, many beautiful tunes. He wrote over 300 vocal works, most of them songs, and almost half of those were folk songs, arrangements of folk songs. He did not want to write music that was inaccessible to people. He wanted to be loved and appreciated by a larger group of people, and he succeeded. But nowhere did he succeed more than in a setting he made of a lullaby. And this, I suspect, everybody in the room knows, so perhaps you will all sing it together. Um, you do not need to sing the German words, Guten Abend, Guten Nacht, but... Thank you all. That was not in his lifetime Brahms' greatest hit, but I would say if we had to say what tune of Brahms is known the world over more than any other, that would be it. Um, however, all these other songs, uh, so many different moods, so many different emotions, uh, many of them exploring love as something dark and difficult, which is how Brahms found it. And even the folk song settings, he tinges always with something that makes it sound like love is never quite as sunny and simple. You know, Hamburg, probably they get two days of sunlight in a year. And uh, it's not Santa Fe. So 
I think that Brahms, be, between the experience he had growing up in his family and uh, just his natural constitution, was never easy with relationships. Uh, when he was 26, he was engaged for a very short period of time and then uh, wrote to this fiance, um, I feel like I can never be fettered. Uh, I can't do what I need to do as a composer. Um, he basically went on to say, I long to continue to have a relationship with you if it's fine that we never have any thoughts of marriage and never discuss it again. <laughs> the woman never wrote back. So that was it. Uh, but the long love of his life was Clara Schumann. And while we really have no idea, no way of having an idea what happened, we know that for the next 45 years, they were continually in contact, writing to each other about music, all of his new works, he didn't feel, were ready to go out to the publisher and to the public until he went to Clara's house, sat down and played it for her. She critiqued it, told him what she liked, told him what she didn't like, told him maybe he thinks it's for two pianos, but it really should be a symphony or it really should be a piano quintet. And uh, she really was his muse in many ways. Uh, her eighth child, their youngest child, Felix Schumann, uh, wrote a poem and Brahms set this to music because it was a way of showing his love for Clara, showing his love for Felix's mother. And uh, you may have heard this song. The, the text that Felix wrote is a young man's text. My love is green like a blooming lilac bush, and my love is as beautiful as the sun that shines on the lilacs, and your love responds. <laughs> Meine Liebe ist grün wie der Fliederbusch und mein Lieb ist schön wie die Sonne. Mein Lieb ist schön wie die Sonne, die glänzt wohl herab auf den Fliederbusch und fühlt ihn mit Duft und mit Wonne und fühlt ihn mit Duft und mit Wonne. I just played that to give you an idea of the exuberant style of Brahms' vocal writing. Um, even in the folk songs, he's assuming that his singers are, are real singers. And um, so all of this leads him to return to that first symphony that he's been struggling away at for 20 years. And finally, finally in 1876, 1876, Brahms's first symphony appears. Now by this time, he's a famous composer and uh, he can uh, do what he likes, but the public is suspicious because he hasn't put a full-scale symphony before them yet. And this is how it starts. By this time, the public is thinking, what is this? Where is the tune? What is this strange uh, succession of rising half steps when, when uh, you know, Beethoven was, was writing nice melodies for it? So uh, Brahms took a lot of criticism in the press for his music being far too academic. 
even though finally this C minor by the fourth movement resolves in... But by that time, the audience has waited 40 minutes and they've probably <laughs> gotten tired. So for his second symphony, instead of taking 22 years, Brahms tossed it off in a couple of months and it was much sunnier and easier for the, the public to grasp. So Brahms learned. You, you didn't need to show off so much if you wanted the audience to actually enjoy your music. And uh, there followed two other symphonies. Uh, the third symphony perhaps is the most perfect fusion of uh, Brahms's love of changing harmony and at the same time with melody that's uh, lovable and uh, appreciable. It goes, let's see if I can do this. has a key that the audience can hear, but it's moving through all these dark harmonies at the same time. And this third symphony uh, really is, is quite a magnificent creation, not that the others are not. Uh, the fourth symphony, funnily enough, is kind of like the uh, examples I showed you from the German Requiem in that late piano piece, in that it sounds like it's beautiful melody, but it's completely mathematically calculated. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so what this is actually is and then he goes back up <laughs> but because he's changed the octaves of the notes uh, it sounds like it's a melody that rises and falls but it's actually a succession of all the thirds going down and then all the thirds going up uh, Brahms loves doing this all right now, I would like to play you a piece written shortly after the Second Symphony. This is a rhapsody. Unlike Schumann and uh, other composers who were writing romantic pieces with programmatic titles, Brahms called his pieces sonata, or ballad, or rhapsody, or intermezzo, or capriccio. It was never, you know, the poet's heart, or the bird sings, or uh, any of those fanciful titles that um, Schumann and Mendelssohn and Liszt all loved so much. So this is the Rhapsody in G minor.
I mentioned that there was a kind of a conflict between Brahms and other composers. In many cases, Brahms admired these other composers for the skill of their work, but the public wanted to pit them against one another. By the time Brahms was in his 30s, he had moved from Germany to Vienna, where he spent most of the rest of his life until his death at 63. So in Vienna, many of the musical greats came into contact with one another. And of course, he knew Wagner, and Wagner knew him. But while the Wagner camp wanted to disparage Brahms, Wagner himself admired Brahms, and Brahms himself thought Wagner was uh, amazing. Uh, it was simply um, a philosophical difference between uh, a kind of musical conservatism that Brahms embraced, and funnily, the, the people who embraced musical conservatism in the uh, late 19th century in Germany were politically the liberal people who felt that the humanitarianism of including all of these different kinds of music was um, a, more of a foundation for a, a Germany where everybody could coexist. Remember Bismarck united Germany in 1871. It, it had been part of the Roman Empire, if you believe this, till 1806. So um, here was Germany undergoing all these huge political and social transformations, and all artists had opinions about these things. Wagner was so uh, vocal about his opinions that he was exiled for 10 years, as you know. So um, Brahms and his uh, close circle of friends appreciated the greatness of one another's work, but uh, the public turned it into um, a battle, a, uh, an ideological battle, really. <laughs> Another part of that was the great waltz composer, uh, Johann Strauss, Jr. And uh, people wanted to pit Brahms and Johann Strauss, Jr. against one another because Strauss's music was lighthearted and not serious, and Brahms was serious and so forth. But uh, uh, Brahms loved Johann Strauss's music. It was the custom at the time when you um, wrote somebody an autograph if you were a famous person, that you'd write a bar or two of music and then sign it. So uh, Johann Strauss's wife gave Brahms a fan, and he was to autograph it. So he wrote the beginning of the Blue Danube on it and then wrote, unfortunately not by Johannes Brahms. Because <laughs> he, he really felt like, uh, even though he was a, a first-rate, second-rate composer, you know, Richard Strauss said, I'm not a first-rate composer, but I'm a first-rate, second-rate composer. And, uh, and Brahms felt that about himself, even though now we consider him one of the, the great composers. Hans von Bülow was a great uh, admirer of Brahms. And um, when Bülow and Brahms got into a, a big fight, really, and, and Brahms offended Bülow, uh, Brahms sent him an autograph, and it just had eight notes on it of, of Mozart, who Brahms worshipped. And it was pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa from the magic flute, where uh, Pamina is saying to Tamino, shall I, beloved, never see you again? And, and Bülow knew exactly what that was, so he was there on the next train. It, it was amazing that Brahms did patch these things up, because uh, he, he had this wonderful friendship, as I mentioned, with Joseph. Joachim, uh, and Joachim, uh, this great violinist, um, had a, a motto as a young man, frei, aber einsam, uh, free, but alone. And, and that meant that he would never marry. 
So Schumann and Brahms and uh, another lesser-known composer all made a movement, and they made an FAE, Frei aber einsam, Sonata for Joachim. That was his motto, and so they honored him in this way. But later on, Joachim decided he would get married, and it was disastrous. And uh, after his divorce, Brahms came to the support of his uh, estranged wife, and Joachim was furious that Brahms uh, did that. So it took Brahms almost to the end of his life to figure out how to win Joachim's friendship back, and he did it by writing a double concerto for, I mean, this is, <laughs> we don't do this nowadays, right? I, I piss you off, so I'm gonna write you a double concerto and you're gonna <laughs> forgive everything. Uh, he wrote a double concerto and uh, it was for violin and cello and orchestra. And sure enough, Joachim's playing his solo at the beginning of the uh, third movement. Uh, So the notes F-A-E are repeated over and over. And uh, Joachim's like, okay, okay, I give up. We can be friends again. So good old Brahms, he comes to the rescue. Um, but, but he really did have a very uh, self-deprecating side. And his, his notion was that there had been great composers whom he wanted to spend his life emulating and honoring, like Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. And, and then there was Brahms. Um, Somebody told me that when he, he was at a dinner party, somebody said, this is now our best wine. I bring out the Brahms wine. And Brahms sniffed it and said, I think you better find your Beethoven wine. <laughs> that was the really good stuff. So um, toward the end of Brahms' life, it was about 57, he had done so much and was so famous, and he decided he would just retire. But that didn't last very long. Uh, Clara Schumann was still alive and she wasn't writing him as often as she used to. So he started writing piano pieces, one and then another, and pretty soon there were 20 of them. And so he's sending Clara Schumann all of these piano pieces. Now, you know, he's now 60 and she's 70, but the love between them is as hot as ever in this crazy romantic 19th century German way where they're talking about their souls and nature and everything, even when they're hundreds of miles apart is so intimate. And fortunately, they did not destroy those letters. Um, so uh, one of these pieces is the little intermezzo that I played for you where the six notes turn upside down. I'm gonna play you that intermezzo. Uh, it's one of Brahms' final piano pieces. And um, it, he just calls it intermezzo in A. That's a very romantic name for one of the most beautiful pieces ever written. <laughs>
so I, I felt you humming along and thinking how beautiful. And, and Brahms, nevertheless, has slipped in dozens of contrapuntal things. A little cannon here. I, he's always up to something. But the biggest thing, I think, in his career, the biggest hidden musical secret, is the four symphonies. Now, uh, in January, I gave a talk on Bach. And you remember I told you that Bach wrote six English suites. And the keys of the six, if you lay them in a row, are A-A-G-F-E-D. And that, that wasn't just an accident, but it spelled out the tune of his favorite chorale, Jesu meine Freude. Well, Brahms, great admirer of Mozart that he was, spelled out with the keys of his four symphonies, which are in C minor, D major, F and E minor. Unfortunately, not by Johannes Brahms, right? <laughs> so Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, the final symphony in the five-part fugue that comes in the finale, is coded into Brahms's four symphonies because he still can't believe that uh, he's as good as uh, Mozart. And, um, you know, there's no point in trying to make those comparisons. Mozart never worried about if he was as good as Brahms. And uh, Brahms thought about it constantly. Uh, he, he never wrote an opera. He said, I would rather be at home and not go to the theater and listen to The Marriage of Figaro by holding the score open in my lap and simply reading it. And, and that was his enjoyment, you know. But uh, it, was, it was his lifelong motto that he would never write an opera and never get married. And he, he was good to both of those things. But what matters to us is the music he wrote us. So we're going to take a break. And then, oh, do I have a very special treat in store for you. So unless you have something very pressing on television that you can't record, I want you to come back <laughs> after 15 or 20 minutes. And um, the principal cellist of the Toronto Symphony, Mr. Joe Johnson, is here with us tonight. And he and I will play for you Brahms's cello sonata in E minor, the whole thing. So come back in a little bit, OK? Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is my great privilege now to introduce to you Mr. Joe Johnson.
Joe, Joe thinks we're going to switch, and now he will play the piano and I will play the cello, <laughs> because that will bring the evening to a very quick close. So thank you all so much. This is wonderful. Brahms would be very, very happy. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're still keeping him alive 185 years later. Yeah. OK, come on. Thank you.